Welcome to Question Period. Happy Hanukkah to those celebrating. Good to have a little light right now. I'm Evan Solomon. Today in our program, The Fight Ahead. How much money did this government spend subsidizing corporations that didn't lose a penny during COVID-19? Mr. Speaker, uh, I will get to the question in a moment, but allow me to begin by thanking the doctors, the researchers, the scientists at Health Canada and elsewhere who worked tirelessly over the past many weeks and months uh, to approve uh, the first COVID-19 vaccine, safe and effective for use for Canadians today. With Canadians getting vaccinated starting this week, did the opposition leader misstep when he said Canada was at the back of the vaccine line? Will he support the government's extended financial support to help Canadians in the months ahead? And what about the Liberals' new $15 billion climate plan? That will increase the price on carbon. Will Aaron O'Toole support that? We have a feature interview with the Conservative leader. He says the government doesn't have a plan. What's his? We'll find out. Plus, carbon price hike? With this plan, Canadians will exceed our 2030 greenhouse gas emissions reduction target under the Paris Agreement. We will establish the building blocks to achieve net zero by 2050. Will the government's new climate plan, which will raise the price of carbon to 170 bucks a ton by 2030, finally get Canada to its promised targets? Will you pay more at the pumps or to heat your home? The Environment Minister Jonathan Wilkinson joins us today. We'll also get reaction from Green Party leader Annamie Paul. Then, vaccine race. The provinces have indicated that they are ready. They have the infrastructure, the training materials, the supplies, and processes in place to receive the first shipments of Pfizer vaccines. The biggest inoculation program in Canadian history begins this week. Is another vaccine also on the way? We'll get the latest on that from the procurement minister, Anita Anand, and then infectious disease specialist, Dr. Isaac Bogosh, joins the scrum on the big rollout and the political implications. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. Well, I think it's, it's great news, and this is why a plan has to have information on the safety and efficacy of the vaccine. Uh, I will be getting the vaccine. I think it's important for public officials to, to talk about how important these are. Tools like rapid tests and vaccines will let us turn the corner in, in the pandemic and help us keep the economy moving. So if people have questions, that's because there's been a vacuum of information. I hope Mr. Trudeau stops being so secretive about this. By Tuesday morning, the government says the first Canadians will be getting the coveted COVID-19 vaccine. 30,000 doses, good for 15,000 people. That'll be rolled out and distributed by the provinces. And 249,000 are coming in December. All this has undermined the criticism from the opposition who have complained for weeks that Canada's, quote, at the back of the vaccine line. But the Conservative leader, Aaron O'Toole, who's now been in the job for 111 days, has also criticized the government for not having a plan for the pandemic. But then he went on a popular Quebec TV show and admitted he'd support most of the programs the government's already rolled out in the last 10 months. So what would his plan be? And how is he trying to reshape the Conservative Party? To find out, we're joined now by the leader of the official opposition, Aaron O'Toole. Mr. O'Toole, a pleasure to have you here. Happy holidays. Glad to see you healthy and I hope your family's well. Thank you, Evan. Uh, same wishes to you and all your viewers. This week, the uh, vaccine will be rolled out. As you know, it's a big day. Has the early arrival of the Pfizer vaccine and the early approval number, the third in the world, 
undermined your longtime criticism that Canada was, quote, back of the vaccine line. This is a great first step, Evan. I'm, I'm happy about it. And in fact, in many ways, I think this is an example of the opposition doing its job. We pushed for faster response on rapid tests. We want a full plan on vaccines. So the early arrival of a, of a number of samples from Pfizer, that should be used by Canada now to test our distribution system. So this is us pushing for more information, for a better response. So I think it's an example of Canadian democracy working. Okay, and you kept asking, uh, where's the plan? Justin Trudeau has no plan. Uh, and admittedly, they were late in rolling out the plan for distribution compared to other countries. But now you've seen the plan being rolled out. Are there details now that you still want or are your concerns about the vaccine rollout as it, the baton is going to be passed to the provinces uh, kind of alleviated now? No, there's still a lot of questions. In fact, the, the government ended up supporting our motion for a plan, a full plan by December 16th, so that Canadians have the peace of mind going into the new year that we're going to be ready. The fact the government was being secretive about uh, how many will be arriving by month, do we have the refrigeration to keep the Pfizer vaccine at minus 70? How will Indigenous communities, how will the North, some rural parts of our country, get distribution. There's still a lot of questions. Trust is a big issue, as you know, trust in the, in the pandemic response, trust in the medical professionals who are urging people to wear masks or social distance, which you've talked about a lot, but also to take the vaccine when it finally gets more widely available. Your own MP, Derek Sloan, sponsored that petition that's now got tens of thousands of signatures that says the vaccine approval process, quote, bypass safety protocols, falsely said that the, quote, vaccines are not designed to prevent infection or transmission, dismissed it as human experimentation. Are those views welcoming your party? And if not, why have you not taken a stronger position vis-a-vis -vis Mr. Sloan on this? Well, we learned this week that, uh, that Mr. Trudeau's half-brother signed the petition. What, what it's an example of, Evan, is the government's secret uh, sort of approach to this, the fact that the Minister Haiju wouldn't ask us if they'd ordered freezers for the vaccine, this adds to uncertainty. I've been uh, asking for months for a vaccine. It's a critical tool. I've said publicly, I will be taking it. And I think the reason why there's more questions than ever, people are worried. They get information on social media and other things. So we have to provide that information and clarity. And so I've tried to be very clear. The reason I'm asking for a public plan on vaccines, Evan, is because the Conservative Party, all of us think it's a critical tool our country needs. But sir, to be fair, blaming the Liberals for Derek Sloan signing a petition, he's in your caucus. He's not a half-brother of someone. You're talking about an elected official who serves under you. You have a responsibility. Many regard this petition as essentially, quote, anti-vaxxer. You've, you've said that you're someone who's tough, you're a leader, you'll take real positions, you're not afraid to take a tough stance. Here's your shot. What's your message directly to Derek Sloan and those tens of thousands of people who are saying this is not a trustworthy vaccine? You're a public official. What's your message to him and to them? As it always has been, Evan, the vaccine is a critical tool. It's now been approved by Health Canada, which means it's been clinically peer-reviewed for both health and safety and efficacy. This is a great tool that can help us turn the corner in the process. Well, I, it's also about confidence, and he was the guy that came in fourth in the leadership. But let me just move on. The deficit is historically high. You've talked a lot about it. The government spending during this pandemic has been 
astronomical, and you've criticized the government on this. But you went on that popular Quebec television show, Tout le monde en parle, and you said unequivocally, if you were the Prime Minister, you would have been just as generous as the Liberals in doling out COVID-19 benefits. So what programs would you cut to cut the deficit if you had to? We've been with, the, with Canadians that have needed help through the pandemic, Evan. I have said that I would have gotten the wage subsidy right. We've got probably as many as one million Canadians displaced out of work because the government got the wage subsidy wrong out of the gate and they pushed the CERB out really quickly. That is why we are going to have higher unemployment. But this is why we also have to get people working, which is why I want to see every cylinder in our engine firing, energy jobs in the West, uh, resource, automotive and steel and aluminum. Right now we need Canadians working. We need to build things in this country and be proud of getting people back to work. That's, I think, what the right. next election will be about, the plan for the future. Right, but, but it's, it's, I'm just trying to figure out if you can pick a lane. It's one thing to support that and get everybody working in a time of economic and, and health crisis and then to complain about the deficit. So let me just be more specific then. Would you be investing to invest in, in businesses to remain in Canada. I just think of an example like the Ford auto plant in Ontario that the Doug Ford Conservative government in Ontario invested in. Or do you agree with your finance critic, Pierre Polyever, who wrote, easy rule, if a business venture needs a government handout, it's a money loser. What would you do? Would you invest in things like the Ford plant? We've got to show that we're open for business for Ford General Motors, which is coming back to build vehicles in, in Oshawa, SUVs, Evan. The Trudeau government is showing we're not open for business. They want to triple the carbon tax, for, an exa for example. We have to send a signal that investment is welcome. Jobs that flow from investment are welcome as well. This is okay, why I'm also reaching out to blue well. collar, to union but, leaders. We need to build up this country. Okay, so I, I want to pick up on that, but I'm just clarifying. Would you, as a Conservative, if you were the Prime Minister, would you be open to government supporting, you know, a factory like Ford transitioning to electric cars? Would you give money to that to keep that factory here? Is that an investment a O'Toole government would support? We want to reduce burdens. So we generally don't pick winners and losers, Evan. In fact, the GM plant will be building trucks and SUVs, not a vehicle that Ottawa picks. Mr. Trudeau is about as far removed from the real economy, the real lives as Canadians as anyone in Ottawa. We need to right. get burdens of tax and the carbon tax right. out of the way. That's why businesses are leaving. That's why we've lost $160 billion of investment in Canada before the pandemic because Mr. Trudeau has made us less competitive. All right, we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, Aaron O'Toole says Canada should get tougher on China. But what would he actually do to talk about that and lots more? We'll be back with Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole. Stay right here with Question Period. Welcome back to Question Period. Look, climate change policy was a difficult election issue for the federal government in the last few elections. Andrew Scheer had a plan, but no targets, and he lost. Will that change under Aaron O'Toole? as the federal government just released its new $15 billion climate plan, including raising the price on carbon to 170 bucks a ton with that rebate, what will the Conservatives' counter plan be? And how would Aaron O'Toole get tougher on China as the two Michaels still languish in a prison for over two years? 
Let's find out. On Friday, the Liberals unrolled their $15 billion climate plan. As you say, the price on carbon will go up to 170 bucks a ton by 250. They say it will meet their Paris emissions target. They say it will be revenue neutral because, as you know, the money gets rebated back to Canadians. You ran against pricing carbon. Would you still commit to meeting the Paris Climate Accord emissions reductions, and are you still opposed to a price on carbon? I'm still opposed to a carbon tax, Evan, yes. In fact, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, all the states we compete against for jobs, for, for vehicles, whether Ford or GM, they don't have a carbon tax. So you wonder why we've been losing investment. It's putting us out of step with our main competitor in the United States. We are going to have a serious approach to reducing emissions. We're going to have a strong plan on the environment. It's going to be a made in Canada plan. I've been talking about it. The environment matters a lot to me. I worked on these issues in the private sector. As a dad to young kids, it's important. So Canadians will see this. I think this is why Mr. Trudeau, who a year ago said he's not raising the carbon tax, obviously misled Canadians. He's tripling it now. And people know that taxation in a time of crisis is not a solution. Well, now he will argue that he's going to give a rebate back, but I've got the uh, environment minister coming up. But I'm just, as a conservative, it's interesting because Premier Jason Kenney, and nobody doubts his conservative bona fides, he imposed a carbon tax of $30 a ton on large emitters. So conservatives are clearly okay with a carbon tax. He doesn't even remit that back to, to families. It, a third of it can go into general revenue. So what's the problem? If Jason Kenney can like a carbon tax, why can't Aaron O'Toole? Well, the large emitter approach, Evan, is the smarter approach. You know, there's only about 700 emitters in Canada that produce about one-third of our emissions. So why are we taxing seniors? Why are we taxing families that may have had mom or dad lose a job? Okay. The Trudeau plan is backwards. We should also respect what Quebec does with a cap-and-trade approach to reducing emissions. Mr. Trudeau actually wants to strong-arm all the provinces into his tax okay. plan instead of what they're already doing. Let me talk about China. You've written a lot about it. The two Michaels have now been in the jail for more than two years. It was two years this past week, actually. Canada is one of the only Five Eyes countries that have not banned the Chinese company Huawei from the 5G network. But Justin Trudeau's policy of engagement with, with China, to be fair, is not that much different than what Stephen Harper's was in terms of engagement. What would you do differently? Well, it was ridiculous this week on the two-year anniversary of the two Michaels being abducted and detained in China that we learned that Ms. Freeland and Mr. Trudeau were fighting against our top general to train the Chinese military in Canada. That, that just shows how out of touch they are with modern risks of communist China. It got worse, Evan, in 2017 when President Xi became president for life. They pushed even more to have Huawei and their state companies to be extensions of their, of their diplomacy, of their security apparatus. We're the only Five Eyes country that still hasn't made a decision on Huawei. And Mr. Trudeau was approving takeovers of Onet and other companies that had the Pentagon, had UK, Australia, right. our allies wondering about us. So we have to have a right. principled approach when it comes to China. It was 2013 under Stephen Harper, you were in that government, that signed the Cooperation Plan Initiative that allowed military training to happen together. To be fair, it was renewed in 2018 by the, the Trudeau government, but that was a Harper government policy and you were in it. And in terms of trade with China, it was the Harper government, you were in it, that signed the Foreign Investment Promotion and Protection Agreement. It lasts 31 years, mostly seen as one-sided for China, again, you were in that government. So when you look at what the Harper government did that you were in, 
does that kind of mute your criticism of the Trudeau government? Because it's the same thing. No, because I've been saying since I got into politics that there's problems with China. I worked on these intellectual property issues in the private sector. And my military background knows that we have to be very cautious. I've said the West over the last 20 years collectively, we have been gamed by China, whether it's the WTO, whether it's the situation in Hong Kong, so we cannot repeat the mistakes of the past. Mr. Trudeau is going further at a time where the rest of the world is pulling back. Just before I let you go, do you think there could be a spring election, there could be one earlier if the the government falls on the economic update. Um, Even though the pandemic will not be over in the spring, although maybe 40 or 50 percent of Canadians would be, we hope, inoculated. Are you ready for a spring election? What's the message to Canadians uh, from Aaron O'Toole? Well, at a time we're telling uh, a lot of families are are making decisions about uh, Christmas and seeing families, it would be irresponsible to say you're going to line up to vote in a pandemic election. A few weeks ago, Mr. Trudeau tried to play some games and do that. We have to get through the health and economic crisis of COVID-19 before we go to the polls, Evan. Uh, I've been putting uh, structures in place in our party to make sure we're ready, we're united, we're a government in waiting. I think we will be a a clear voice for Canadians that deserve an ethical government with a plan for the future of building Canada. But I don't think we should have an election until we've rounded that corner in this, the biggest crisis of all of our lives. Well, Mr. O'Toole, I really appreciate having you on the program, and it is going to be a difficult holiday season for families across this country, across the world. Uh, I really appreciate you spending some time with us, and I look forward to more conversations in the future. Thank you, Evan. Happy Hanukkah. Merry Christmas. Best of the season to everyone. All right. Coming up next on Question Period, the first vaccine lands in Canada tomorrow. But is there a second vaccine also on the way? And when could that come? Procurement Minister Anita Anand joins us next to find out. And also the Environment Minister Jonathan Wilkinson joins us to give us the details on Canada's new $15 billion climate plan. Stay right here with Question Period. one step along the road. Um, It's one um, tool in terms of our fight against uh, COVID-19, along with all of the other measures. Um, We have other vaccines that will be likely coming as well. But I think in a year where we haven't had a lot of good news, um, this is a bit of good news. And I think we should take a a moment to to acknowledge that. And then uh, we're all going to get back to work. It's a December moment of vaccine hope. This week, as early as Tuesday, some Canadians will start getting that much-coveted Pfizer vaccine against COVID-19. Canada is the third country in the world to approve the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, and as many as 30,000 doses have already been dispatched. According to the federal officials, up to 50% of people will be vaccinated by the end of June and 100% by the end of September. But with only one approved vaccine, are these targets realistic? And when will Canada receive the other vaccines procured by the federal government? Let's find out. Joining us now is the Public Services and Procurement Minister, Anita Anand. Minister, it was a heck of a week last week, and it will be an historic week this week when we see the first dose. How many Canadians do you reckon uh, in this week ahead will actually get that Pfizer vaccine? Well, Evan, you hit the nail on the head by saying that last week was an incredible week for Canada and for Canadians. The fact that we were able to land early doses of the Pfizer vaccine, 249,000 to be precise, 
and that 30,000 of those vaccines shipped on Friday for arrival on Monday and inoculation occurring on Tuesday is indeed an incredible milestone for this country. So are you suggesting in the next, are you hoping that all 30,000 or in other words, 15,000 people will be vaccinated at least in the next couple days then, I guess by the end of the week? Well, we have to remember that it is a two-dose vaccine, as your question suggests. And so the first inoculation occurs on Tuesday, and then there's a two-week window or thereabouts, and we will have another set of inoculations going out after that. But you'll have to remember there's rolling timeframes for all of these things, not just the inoculations, but also for the arrival of the vaccines themselves. So they'll continue to arrive in this country, and we will continue to get them out to the provinces and territories. The next one up is Moderna. Um, Moderna is based on a similar, let's call it a technical platform as the Pfizer vaccine. Um, how close, and there was word from um, General Hillier, who's in charge of the distribution in Ontario, saying, look, we're going to get some of those Moderna. How close are we to shipping the Moderna vaccines here? And how close maybe are we to approval on that? I don't want to put the cart before the horse at this point, because we need to have a sense of when Health Canada regulatory approval might be forthcoming. Having said that, we are in touch with our suppliers every day, including Moderna, and we are pressing for early deliveries of the doses pending Health Canada regulatory approval. Um, it's impossible to put a time frame on that right now because Health Canada is an independent regulatory right. process. Uh, but we continue to work with our suppliers and base our shipments around that potential approval, which we hope is forthcoming. Okay, but Mr. if you don't mind me pressing, are you working to receive shipments of, let's say, Moderna ahead of approval? So, you know, once Health Canada gives the green light, there's no delay in the rollout. It's a great question, and certainly Health Canada has said that suppliers can pre-position their orders, and so that is an issue that we have been raising with all suppliers as to whether they would like to do so. You'll have to remember that Pfizer having to be stored at minus 70, that wasn't a great option for Pfizer. Um, Moderna being stored at minus 20, it's a possibility. Um, but again, what we really want to make sure is immediate delivery of vaccines as soon as possible after right. Health Canada approval. So whether Moderna chooses to preposition or not, we really are seeking right. just to get those shipments out the door as soon as possible. What was amazing is by the time you and I spoke from last week to this week, we had a month long acceleration to the good of the arrival of the Pfizer. It was supposed to be January, it turned out to be mid-December. Hallelujah, great news. Now we're hearing timelines of June and September for possibly all Canadians, which also would be good. That's an acceleration. Is there a chance, Minister, that those are still conservative? If Moderna arrives, if Johnson & Johnson arrives, if AstraZeneca arrives, could these timelines for vaccinations in Canada actually accelerate even further? I have taken great precaution, Evan, in all of my conversations to ensure that Canadians understand that there are risks involved in procuring vaccines, risks in the supply chain, risks in production, and risks relating to transportation. And it's for that reason, it's with a consideration of those risks that I seek to speak primarily in terms of the outside timeframe, because I don't want to overpromise 
and under deliver. It needs to be a very realistic conversation. And as a result, I believe that we need to continue to think about the September and December timeline as opposed to earlier. And if we can get vaccines into Canada earlier, all the better, yeah. but let's take it one step at a time. Well, it's going to be an historic week. We're going to see the first jab. Uh, Minister Anita Ned, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much. All right, but the COVID crisis is clearly not the only one the federal government is fighting. On Friday, they released their $15 billion plan to battle the climate crisis. On the fifth anniversary of the Paris Accord, the government outlined how they say they will exceed the Paris emission reduction targets by 2030. First, the price on carbon is going to increase from $50 a ton in 2023 to $170 a ton by 2030. The government also said this will be revenue neutral, meaning people will actually get checks sent to them to cover the increase of the cost to gas and home heating. And those rebates will now come four times a year, not just once a year as they do right now. How's all this going to actually work? Let's dig into the details with the Environment Minister himself, Jonathan Wilkinson. Uh, Minister, always a pleasure to have you on the program and I hope you and the family are, are well. Um, you know where I got to start with the price of carbon because that's always the headline. It is going up to $170, as I just said, uh, by 2030. For people saying, okay, uh, how much of, will the price of gas and how much will the cost of heating my home go up as a result? Well, let me start by saying this is a pretty important day. This is the first time that Canada has had a climate plan that details how it will not only meet, but it will exceed the commitments it has made internationally to fighting climate change. And as you said in the, in the introduction, the focus of the way in which we implement the price on pollution federally is to ensure that all of the money goes back. Um, and certainly 90% of it goes back to families, which means the vast majority of, of Canadian families actually get more money back. We are moving to a quarterly payment to ensure that it's more regular. But at the end of the day, the net cost for the majority of Canadian families is actually negative. There is actually no cost. It actually is a benefit. Okay, but, but they may cost, I mean, someone's got to pay for this. And so, you know, there has been all sorts of studies that fuel producers and others will pass on the cost of this. So, I, you know, how, every time you raise the, the price of carbon by $15 a ton, which will start by uh, 2023, how much will the price of gas go up? So what is the cost to heat my home? What is the cost to fill up the tank of the car now? But I, I think what underpins your question, Evan, is the issue of affordability. Um, and, and the question of affordability is actually answered through the return of money. The focus on the price of pollution is to change behavior. It's to incent people to make cha uh, choices with respect to energy efficiency, um, to low carbon products. And, and then we return the money back to people so that the majority of Canadian families get, get more money back. So at the end of the day, you know, it is, it is not... Um, the, the fact that there is a bump in the price of gas, you get the same amount of money back, and for the majority of Canadian families, you get more. What about the provinces who are challenging the carbon tax in court? Let's say they win. What happens to this plan? Well, I mean, first of all, I would say that uh, the federal government, obviously the courts will decide, but the federal government remains confident in its legal position that it is within federal jurisdiction. Um, we clearly will need to engage with provinces and territories as we move forward, and we will be listening to the courts for sure. But I would say that there are lots of things in this plan that I think there is 
real opportunity for engagement with every province and territory in this country. Some of the investments with respect to carbon capture and sequestration, hydrogen, biofuels will be of great interest to Saskatchewan and Alberta. The Atlantic Loop and the investment in enterprise will be of great interest to all of the Atlantic provinces. I'm looking for ways to have constructive conversations with my counterparts. There are many areas on which we agree. There probably will be some areas in which we don't. You and I both know we're already dealing with record deficits and, and record debts. So I guess two questions. How, over what period of time is that new money being spent and on what? And how, what's the guarantee that there's a ROI, a return on investment? There are a number of different areas in which we are looking to deploy capital. Um, some of that is to retrofit homes and retrofit community facilities like hockey rinks and, and libraries where, uh, where we need to improve energy efficiency, but it also provides opportunities to upgrade facilities. Um, we are going to be partnering with large emitters in this country to take big chunks out of the emissions that they produce through, through the deployment of new technologies. We're going to be helping to facilitate the growth of the biofuels and hydrogen and renewable, uh, renewable gas industries in Canada to help us move forward. But this is all part of a global move, right? I mean, this, this, is, this is a change that is happening globally. International capital has moved, countries are moving. This is actually becoming, low carbon is becoming the basis of competition around the world. And Canada can either put its head in the sand and, and decide that it actually is not going to participate in the future, or it can try to be a leader. And we can work alongside the Europeans yeah. and the Chinese, and now increasingly President-elect Biden in the United States, who has made bold promises with respect to climate ambition. But he hasn't done it. I mean, there, there's, it is, our biggest trading partner, by the way, is, is the Americans. If we're out ahead on the Americans, putting prices on things, doesn't that put our, our, our manufacturers at a competitive disadvantage? No, actually it doesn't. Um, the way in which the output-based systems for large emitters are structured is it actually requires companies to, to move towards best-in-class within Canada. Um, and so they are not exposed from a trade perspective. But I would tell you that if you read President Biden's, President-elect Biden's plans with respect to cli uh, climate, they are extremely bold. And Canada will need to ensure that it is acting similarly to, in, to, to, to ensure that we're competitive in a low-carbon world. Minister, i got to leave it there. I always appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, coming up, green with disappointment. Does the Green Party leader support the new Liberal climate plan, or is it, as she once said, more smoke and mirrors? The Green Party leader, Annamie Paul, joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. There are some places in this country that still want to make pollution free again. Well, we're not going to do that. We are continuing to move forward and doing so by putting more money in the pockets of Canadian families, by increasing the price on pollution. The government unveils its new $15 billion plan to meet its emissions targets by 2030, including a price on carbon rising to $170 a tonne, by 2030. They say you won't pay more because of the rebate. Is this enough or will this plan take over ground the Green Party needs to try to win in order to grow its base and get its new leader a seat in the House of Commons? Let's find out to get reaction and to see what's ahead. The Green Party leader, Annamie Paul, joins us now. Great to have you on the program. By the way, happy Hanukkah as well. Um, the Liberals unveiled this plan. Uh, $15 billion climate plan, that price of carbon is going up to $170 a tonne by 2030. They say it will exceed their Paris targets. A uh, month ago you said it was all smoke and mirrors. What about now? 
I still can't see for the smoke, Evan. You know, this is, uh, we, we were, as a Green Party, we're always there to work across party lines on the climate. And we're still calling for an inner cabinet made, uh, made up of leaders across party lines on the climate. It's not a partisan issue. Uh, you know, but what we see in this plan today still gives us reason to continue to push. Uh, there was no new target. Uh, we promised under the Paris Agreement that by this year we would have increased our target and there's no new target. And without that new target, we're working towards an objective that is already out of date. But to be fair, you're holding them account to a target that they don't have. They set a target. First, they were not accountable because they weren't, and they weren't, by the way, meeting their own target. They were falling behind. Now they say they're going to exceed their target. Now you're saying it's a failure because they haven't adopted your target. Is that fair? This is not our target. This is the target that the uh, IPCC, the International Panel on Climate Change, has called for. Uh, you know, this is a commitment that we made under the Paris uh, Agreement because we knew, even back in 2015 when it was signed, that we were going to have to update it based on the science. And so we've known for years that our target of 30% reductions uh, by 2030 uh, against 2005 levels was just not enough. We've known that for many years, and so uh, the Liberals keep announcing, keep announcing, but they don't set that new target, and it actually is a violation of our international obligations. Oh. We're supposed to have a target now between 55 and 60 percent under the Paris Agreement. Uh, do you feel, though, when the Liberals are putting such a, an emphasis on this, that what they're doing politically is trying to essentially mow your political lawn. We're going to move on the environment. This is something that they've talked about. They're making obviously pretty big investments in it. Uh, do you think they're forcing the Green Party to, to keep moving along the spectrum to take more uh, di different positions and essentially keep stealing your political ground? There's no worry that we have to go look for, you know, any new pastures. Uh, we're still the only ones that have proposed a target that respects the science, that respects our international obligations. We're still the only party calling for a carbon budget. We're still the only party, uh, well, of the NDP, the Conservatives and the Liberals, that recognizes you can't build pipelines and continue fracking and hope uh, to meet our climate obligations. I will point out that there was no mention today of cancelling TMX, even though we know now that it's likely to be a white elephant and we know that it's going to blow through our carbon budget. So if people are looking for real positive solutions on the climate, ones that really seize this chance of a lifetime that we have to have a green recovery, we're still the only, uh, only place uh, to go, you know, we're the best show in town. You're facing an interesting prospect. There, there could be a spring election, as you know. Uh, there's now a vaccine, but there's still a yep. long and difficult road ahead on COVID. Uh, you don't have a seat. You ran in Toronto Centre in a by-election and you lost. What's the plan ahead to reposition the Green Party for you? And, and, and how do you get a seat and, and grow that party in time for another election? Well, if we have an election in the spring and we might, uh, you know, we'll be ready. And of course, I will be running. Uh, and so in the meantime, I'm going to keep doing what we've already started to do, which is starting a new conversation with uh, people in Canada about our party. I think they're really interested. I think that that's the lesson from the by-election and our results. Uh, they want a positive vision for the future. We know they believe that uh, we can have a strong, sustainable economy at the same time as we uh, tackle the climate emergency. And they know that many of the policies we proposed uh, in the 2019 election, had we had them in place, 
place, uh, we would have been much further ahead. And so we're talking about completing the social safety net and uh, tackling, accelerating our transition uh, towards a net zero economy. I mean, you've run a couple of times in, in that Toronto Centre and, and it hasn't gone your way, even though I know you increased mm -hmm. your vote, but, it, but you can't really afford to lose another time if there's a spring election. Are you thinking about running somewhere else? I mean, that's a, to be fair, Evan, that's a little bit of an understatement to say we increased um, our votes. You know, we went from 7% to almost 33%, and uh, we closed the, the gap that the Liberals had uh, in the last election. They had a 35-point uh, spread, and uh, we, we brought it within 9%. Hey, so, uh, listen, listen, uh, you know, I, that I, was exciting. I, not, in that I think that's great, but you know what <laughs> Mr. Kretschia used to say, a win is a win is a win. Like, you got to win. So are, are you right. thinking about running someplace else? Yeah. Yes, uh, and he's right. You know, at the end of the day, I did not win that seat. And so we're looking right now to see uh, where I might run. I mean, obviously, my Toronto Centre is somewhere near and dear to me, but I want to get a seat in Parliament. Uh, I ha clearly have a lot to, to say. I know that it would be um, very helpful to the party. So we're definitely looking at that. It's going to be an exciting year. Uh, you made history this year and next year. We First of all, we all hope for a brighter uh, 2021, but uh, we look forward to where you will be leading the Green Party enemy. Paul, I really appreciate you joining us today. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Evan. Take care. Happy holidays. That is Annemi Paul, the new leader of the Green Party. And, and as, you, as she just said, she's always got a lot to say and we love having her on the program. Coming up, will the Pfizer vaccine politically inoculate Justin Trudeau from criticism that Canada was at the back of the vaccine line? What are the challenges ahead? The Scrum is next. Our special guest is infectious disease specialist, Dr. Isaac Bogosh. He's also on the Ontario Vaccine Distribution Task Force. Stay right here with Question Period. Well, Canada is less than 48 hours from the first person getting a COVID-19 vaccine. 30,000 doses of the Pfizer vaccine, that's good for 15,000 people, will arrive tomorrow. They'll be distributed to the 14 sites across the country, and the jabbing begins. This is the first of 249,000 expected to arrive in December, and then it's up to the provinces to get the distribution right. We should also say, well, this is remarkable and a much-needed moment of hope, and it is. Canada is still in the midst of a raging second wave of COVID. Provinces like Alberta, Quebec, parts of Ontario and other provinces are still very much in emergency mode. Well, in the U.S., it's on fire. One day last week, more than 3,000 people died of COVID. More people than were killed on 9-11. And almost every day, it's close to that. So there's still a long road ahead. As Winston Churchill once said, this is not the beginning of the end. It's the end of the beginning. So... Will all Canadians really be vac vaccinated by September 2021? And what are the political implications of the rollout? Let's put that to the scrum. Joyce Napier is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for CTV News. She joins us. Tonda McCharles is a senior reporter with the Toronto Star in Ottawa. And our special guest this round Everybody. is infectious disease specialist and now a member of the Ontario Vaccine Distribution Task Force, Dr. Isaac Bogosh. Good morning to everybody here. All right, we're... You know, we're all warmed a bit by the light of hope, Doc, but uh, you're on the distribution task force, and I, I know you were certainly happy with the news about the Pfizer vaccine. What's the biggest challenge now facing the distribution of it when it arrives tomorrow? Well, essentially, it's a very challenging product to work with. We know it has to be stored at minus 70. We know it's a very finicky vaccine. It doesn't travel well. The, the monograph basically says you shouldn't be even shaking it up all that much because it might not be as active. So, essentially, we have to use the limited resources we have as effectively 
and as smartly as we can. And really, that's identifying the highest priority of the highest priority, which looks like it's going to be the long-term care residents or people that work in long-term care. Tyna, what, what are the biggest challenges from a political side for the rollout now, not only for the federal government, but as they pass the baton off to the provincial governments? Well, look, I think the, the biggest challenge is actually hitting the most vulnerable. We've already heard from many provinces that uh, actually getting the vaccine to some of the most vulnerable seniors in long-term care homes is something they're not ready to do. Only those who are mobile, who can come to the key distribution sites, will be able to get it first. That leaves uh, many questions around how will they uh, stand up mobile clinics to get into the homes to reach those most vulnerable people. Um, that's one issue. But I think all the identified priority access groups, the, the seniors' homes, residents, uh, healthcare workers, frontline workers, essential workers, you know, indigenous communities. These all represent different logistical challenges and many people be, will be looking to say, when am I going to get mine? While the early supplies are so limited. So I think, you know, it all bears, I think, a very delicate, it's a delicate game for the next several months. Yeah, the politics of scarcity always tricky, Joyce. Health Canada then released a chart saying up to 50% of the Canadian population will be able to be vaccinated by the end of June and almost everybody by the end of September. That's a massive acceleration from what they were talking about by about three or four months at least. Um, what does that question of, of the expectation game then, does that pose a political challenge for governments across the country? Well, I think right now, uh, this was definitely a win for the Trudeau government. I mean, I'll bring you back to what if just a few days ago when the opposition was saying, well, should we wait till 2030? Well, no, here you are. We were at the back of the line a few weeks ago, and now here we are, you know, the second country or the third country. So political win for sure. So everybody's happy now. And everybody agrees, obviously, at this point, that there's certain parts of the population that need it first. Tonda, Tonda mentioned them. It's after that, I think, that we're going to start asking the questions. Why uh, cops before teachers? Why teachers before, you know, supermarket workers? I think that's where politically it will become a little bit more challenging. In Canada so far, there seems to be a consensus that there's a group of people that have to go first. And, and so for now, we have peace. Dr. Bogosh, there's also on the other side, and I think Joyce and Tonda are right to highlight the urgency, everybody wants it. There's a whole lot of talk about vaccine hesitancy. Got conservative MPs like Derek Sloan, who sponsored a petition uh, that essentially said, safety protocols have been bypassed this is human experimentation there are also legitimate concerns of canadians that was this rushed they saw about some allergic reactions to the virus to the vaccine in the uk do that we don't know the long-term impacts of this what do you say to those folks who may have that uh, hesitancy some people no matter what we say no matter what we do they're just not going to take a vaccine we've known this problem has existed long before COVID 19 and this is going to exist long after COVID 19. That's a challenging group, but, but something that I think we at least have to acknowledge. There's, of course, lots of other people who have concerns, questions, anxiety around the vaccine. They might want to know more about it. I think as a healthcare community, a public health community, a medical and scientific community, we have to listen. We have to be empathetic. We can't discount this. There, there certainly are things we know, but there's certainly a lot of things that we don't know. We have to be very open and honest and transparent. We have to be uh, mindful that we're going to learn some things along the way, that we don't have all the answers, but we still have a lot of answers, and that the process to create these vaccines 
was sound. The phase one, the phase two, the phase three clinical trials, the independent evaluation by Health Canada. This is a sound process. This is how drugs and vaccines come onto the market and, and really just continue the, continue the dialogue on an ongoing basis. Absolutely. Uh, Tonda, this marks a, a moment. Uh, certainly we're moving into another stage of this pandemic because the vaccine arrives. Then the government's got to roll out different things, not just the vaccine. They rolled out their economic update with big spending promises, vague, the $100 billion over three years. We don't know what that's going to be about. Uh, on Friday, they rolled out a $15 billion environmental plan. What's Justin Trudeau's biggest challenge as, you know, they're still spending huge amounts of money. We're still in the crisis, but certainly by the summer, uh, they got to move into stage two. What's their biggest challenge as, the, as they keep rolling out pretty big programs by any stretch? I think their biggest challenge is to resist trying to bring themselves down and go into an election quickly in the spring when the vaccine rollout starts to really ramp up and some of the economic measures perhaps are, are having to be wound down. Um, and before they're pinned too closely to details on the $100 billion unspecified spending to come over the next three years. Look, I think that um, this government uh, won't last until the fall, uh, even though they're, uh, look, they're checking off boxes, the political boxes, of not just their campaign um, promises, but they're checking off big to-do lists um, that ha have resulted from the pandemic and that will secure um, a base that will elect them, re-elect them again, according to a lot of the polls right now, which is a center-left and left base. So uh, I, that's their biggest challenge, I think. Uh, just I'll leave one last thing with you, Dr. Bogus. First of all, I'm wondering if you're actually going to be there to see one of these folks get vaccinated. I'm sure that'll be a pretty cool moment. But in your community, are you hoping that the Moderna, is there an expectation that another vaccine could come along early January and accelerates the process a bit? Absolutely. In fact, the next big, uh, big one to come will hopefully be Moderna. We understand that uh, Health Canada is probably pretty close to approving that. And if we get access to that, uh, there's going to be a lot of significant benefit. That's a, a, an easier product to work with. That's something right. that can travel a lot easier. So you can get that into long-term care facilities. You can get that to rural, remote, underserviced areas. You can get that into fly-in Indigenous communities. There's a lot of good you can do with that. So if you have a Pfizer product, and a Moderna product, you can certainly run a very, very good vaccine rollout program that can accommodate everybody. Guys, I got to leave it there. Man, little hope, right? Dr. Isaac Bogosh, thanks for your frontline work. Uh, Joyce Napier, Tonda McCharles, thanks so much. We're all going to witness a bit of history in this upcoming week. Someone's going to be the first person to get the vaccine. That'll be a good day. That does it for question period this week. A happy Hanukkah to those celebrating. Dr. Bogosh, happy Hanukkah to you as well. Good to have a little light for anybody right now. We all need to take care of our loved ones and stay kind. I'll see you on Power Play tomorrow at 5 p.m. Eastern, and we will be back here on question period in seven short days.